Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome to, I guess it's more of an announcement before things actually begin with the podcast, but it's something rather exciting that we wanted to share with you. We started a book club. Well... Oh, no, we did. We I did. I mean, yeah, it is. It's, it's for all of us for it here. I mean, you listen to me tell stories all the time. So the fact that it's a audio book club is actually kind of great because, you know, I'm always telling you things. And so you listen. Audiobook, podcast, it's the same thing. It's literally the same thing, basically, except you usually have one person. I don't think there's an audiobook style where there's two people talking, but that would be very interesting. I would like a romance audiobook style where there's like, wait. You're, Gabby, <laughs> you're making this into something very different, but I wanted to talk to you about what we're doing here. So we're using a service called Chirp, which it's this audiobook club, and we're being sponsored by them by Chirp Books, where it's this retailer that is known for making all these great deals without any commitments, no subscriptions, nothing. So the way that it's going to work essentially is that each month I'm going to announce a new kind of history book club pick that we're all going to be able to listen to together. And then at the end of the month, you all are going to have the chance to share your thoughts on that book and see what other club members thought about it as well. So the way to get started, if you want to join, is go to chirpbooks.com history. Again, that's chirp like the sound that a bird makes, chirpbooks.com history to follow my club and get a history of the world in six classes for only $3 for a limited time. That's C-H-I-R-P-B-O-O-K-S dot com slash history. I probably should have spelled it out rather than you say what have... like a bird made. You don't listen to podcasts and it shows. <laughs> oh, well, it is what it is. But anyway, by following my club, you're going to get exclusive access to join my book club discussion where you're going to see what other History of Everything book club members think about the books and also share their thoughts too. In addition, we will be hosting book club discussion nights in Discord where after you've listened to the book, we all chat with Steven. I mean, you can chat with me too, but I don't really have much input. <laughs> don't worry. I'll talk her off for all of us. She'll know. Anyway, enjoy the episode before she ends me. This is our first sponsor ever, so thank you very much, Chirp Books. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, My Hose. I really hope that all of you who are... Wait, what? what why are you reacting like that? <laughs> Your breath stinks. We just ate. Like, are you... It smells like straight chicken. Like, it makes me want to gag. Chicken and eggplant, excuse you. It was really good. I know, it's very good. You, you're literally just sitting over here just... Okay. Okay. No, I love you so much. Come on, continue. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, anyway, for those of you who are listening, I guess, welcome back to the podcast here. Welcome to, well, I mean, we're, we're going to tell a story today about that was based off of, um, it was based off of one of the listener requests 
that not listener requests, listener submissions. That's the proper term. So Juan Cordova. Yes. Juan, last time you told the story of how your grandmother actually met Pancho Villa. And I love that story. That was actually really cool. And it made me want to tell the story of Pancho Villa. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of people know the name Pancho Villa, but they don't necessarily know who he he was, like in terms of detail, like his actual life story. They may know when he was assassinated. They may know a couple of his actions, but not like his actual full story. And so I wanted to tell that. Gabby, do you, do you know who Pancho Villa is just off the top of your head? No clue. Okay, so it's actually one of the things for here when we were putting in the listener submissions, how she had... Okay, wait, hold on. I'm trying to talk here, and Gabby has lotion, and she is rubbed... Like, she's placed the lotion bottle just, like, directly underneath her nose while it is that I'm talking, which I'm guessing is because of my breath. It 100% is, but the show must go on. Although, can we pause and you just, like, fix this? Can you just, like... Well, no. Yeah, it's fine. I... I don't even know how to react right now. Okay, well, anyway, here, Gabby, I'm going to make sure to look directly at you and just, like, talk all of my breath here. Okay, I know I'm making you uncomfortable. I apologize. Anyway, back to the story. So, I wanted to tell you all the story of Pentavia just so that you can get a kind of understanding of who it is that he was, his complete story, and all the crazy things that were happening during the Mexican Revolution, which... I'll be honest, I could probably do an entire podcast dedicated to the Mexican Revolution itself, because that one, I mean, revolutions around the world are kind of crazy. So Pancho Villa, his original name was Jose Doroteo Aranga Arambla, and he was born on June 5th, 1878. He was the son of a sharecropper at the Hacienda in San Juan del Rio, which was in the, I guess, province or state, how I would say it, of Durango. And so while he was growing up, Pancho Villa witnessed a lot of the, I guess, a lot of the things that made life really harsh when you were essentially a peasant. And I say that term, peasant, not as like comparing it to something. I mean directly a peasant, because for those of you who are kind of familiar with colonial Spain, like when when Spain controlled everything from all the way down in what is today Argentina, going all the way up to California... What was New Spain at the time when we think of like Mexico and this kind of thing? It was it was pretty much a feudal society. Like Spain was one of the early colonizers. So the the kind of social structure, everything that was set up was almost built kind of like the feudal system. And even after Mexico got its independence from Spain, a lot of these relationships, a lot of this the social dynamics, etc., they still stayed the same. And so, for all intents and purposes, he was an actual peasant, like what we would think of in medieval times, a peasant. So, you see, in Mexico during the late 19th century, the rich were becoming richer, and they were taking advantage of the lower classes and treating them essentially like enslaved people. So, in the case of Pancho Villa, when he was 15, his father died. So, in order to help things out, Villa began to work as a sharecropper in order to help support his mother and four siblings, which... Gabby, do you remember what a sharecropper was? Yeah, they all lived on the land, they farmed it, and then they split profits. No, no, no. That's um you're you're thinking of a commune. Oh. Like communal farming. Oh, what is it, a it's, sharecropper? It's it's a it's a kind of a similar concept God, I was except so confident. The, no, you were I mean, here's the thing. It was a it's a similar 
kind of thought. Okay, so a sharecropper, for those of you who don't know, it's a type of farmer or farming system in which you have families will rent small plots of land from a landowner in return for a portion of their crop. So, like, let's say that in our backyard, we rented our backyard to some people to have a farm in, right? Like, that's just what it was. And then what would happen is they would get, they would grow the food or whatever they're growing, and we would get a percentage of it as a kind of fee. That That's what it would be. So we would get, you know, half the crop or a third of it or whatever the percentage is, that kind of thing. That's what I said. That's basically the same. No, thing. you were talking about families who were like sharing a like a farm and all just splitting it together. This is specifically with the landowner. Well, I think I was thinking about the what is that thing in Russia with serfs? I think that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, this is definitely closer to that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about. I'm just really bad at explaining what I'm thinking. No, uh, hey, in that sense, you were actually pretty close in that line of thought. So they essentially were treating these peasants, they, they were pretty much enslaved. Like, they were bound to the land. They would have to they would have to rent this land. They would have to take loans in order to buy seeds and other goods in order to grow stuff on that land. Oftentimes, hell, a lot of these peasants who were renting from landlords were literally taking loans from the landlords to get crops which they would then in turn split with the landlords even more. Like it was a kind of it was a kind of self-repeating cycle that would just make it worse and worse and worse. And this was common. So in this with the southern economy in disarray after the abolition of slavery and the devastation of the civil war, sharecropping was one of those things that was actually very common in the south because it enabled white landowners to reestablish a kind of labor force. See, it gave freed black people a means to, you know, sustain themselves it gave them jobs it gave them work to do but at the same time that system very severely restricted the economic mobility of laborers and it led to a lot of conflicts during the reconstruction period i mean sharecropping was a very very abusive kind of system it really was it was essentially slavery but with freedom like that that's literally the best way that i could frame it Okay, I literally knew all of this. I'm so bad at explaining it, though. Wow. Unfortunate. I mean, it what happens. It, it, literally, it's what happens. Everyone, we interrupt this broadcast to let you know that I have now brushed my teeth, and so Gabby is no longer upset with me. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Anyway, so wait, what were we talking about again? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know, I know I'm literally talking about it right now for it here. I apologize. Okay, so Panchovia was living this kind of peasant life, essentially, right? Except it wasn't a good life. It was bad. And he perhaps had one of the more abusive landlords who kind of controlled things. So what ended up happening is that one day in 1894, Villa came home from the fields to find that the owner of the hacienda was trying to rape his 12-year-old sister. So Villa, then only 16 years old, he grabbed a pistol and shot the owner of the hacienda, and the ch he just ran for the mountains. Because it didn't matter that he had been caught in the middle of a crime. Since he shot the landlord, there was very little that the legal system was going to do in order to kind of protect him. Like, he had shot a man that would, he would have no way of really proving that, like, what happened. And so he just ran. He knew that if he stood around, that the police were going to come after him, and he was screwed. 
So from that time, from 1894 all the way until 1910, Villa sent, he like spent most of his time in the mountains running from the law. But by 1896, he had joined up with some other bandits, quote-unquote, and he became their leader. So Villa and his group of bandits would do things like steal cattle, they would rob shipments of money, they would commit other crimes against the wealthy, and because he stole from the rich and would often then share his spoils with the poor, some saw Villa as a kind of modern-day Robin Hood. Like, that's just what he did. So it was during that time that Doroteo Arango began using the name Francisco Pancho Villa. You see, Pancho is a common nickname for Francisco, so that's kind of where you got it from. Like, there's many theories as to why he chose that name. Some say that it was the name of a bandit leader that he had met. Others say that it was actually Villa's fraternal grandfather's last name. But regardless of the situation, Villa's notoriety as a bandit and his prowess at escaping capture it caught the attention of men who were planning a revolution. But this time, it wasn't going to be against Spain, it was going to be against the Mexican government. You see, these men understood that Villa's skills would make him an excellent guerrilla fighter during the revolution. Which, yes, this is going to get messy, as it naturally would during a revolution, so let me, let me, let me try and provide a little bit of context for this, because there is, there is a lot when it comes to the Mexican Revolution. I could, I could do a whole podcast on this, but I'm going to need to give some kind of like quick summary here to just kind of explain it. So, Gabby, if we're talking about the Mexican Revolution, that revolution began as a kind of... How should I put this? It began against a background of just general dissatisfaction with the kind of elitist, oligarchical policies of a man by the name of Porfirio Diaz. You see, he was the leader that had favored wealthy landowners and industrialists, and so when Diaz in 1908 said that he welcomed the increasing, how should I put this, the democratization? Democratization? Democratization. How the hell do I actually pronounce or say that again? I'm messing up my words here for it. Basically, he he understood and agreed that Mexico needed to adopt a more democratic process. That's really the gist of it. So when he said that, the political, like, light, like, everything seemed great. Like, okay, this is awesome. He appeared ambivalent about kind of running for his 7-3 election as president. But, of course, if he lost, then he was perfectly willing to step down. Everything was fine. So in 1910, you had this guy by the name of Francisco Madero, who was an idealistic liberal from an upper-class family, which typically that is what happens in these kinds of things when within revolutions and these liberal back- backgrounds. It's usually a kind of wealthy person that does this. Hell, that was actually very common. Like, for example, uh, remember uh, Vladimir Lenin for the Soviet Union? The yeah. communist? Lenin, yeah. Oh yeah, Everybody no, knows Lenin. Well, he came from a very privileged background, too. Like, really? oh, yeah, no, let's think the majority of communists and people like that for it here, they come from wealthy backgrounds and then just kind of try to hide it. Do you think it's because they want people to have that like wealthy, well taken care of, worry free life that they experience? Because I think personally, I would want that for people, too. If I came well, from typically they start young, they come from education, they look at the problems in society all around. Think about this. 
you know how you have like the high school and college students who think that they know everything and they can fix the world if only they were in charge? Oh, that was me. And then you actually get some power and you're like, wow, I can't even run this one shift because so many people have so many differing opinions. And man, I hate this. <laughs> That's kind of what happens. So these are idealistic thinkers who think that they can effectively fix the world's problems. And that's that's usually what ends up happening. Honestly, I think that some of them maybe have some ideas that can help fix problems. It's just implementing it always leads down like a dark and kind of stressful path, I think, because there's, again, so many differing opinions. You can't just do something without someone else giving some sort of pushback or criticism, and then it just kind of spirals out of control. Correct. So the case of Madero, he emerged as the leader of the... That like the Hispanic word for it would be the anti-reeleccionistas, which literally the anti-reelectionists, the we're gonna stop you from getting reelected party. <laughs> and so he announced his candidacy. Diaz then had him arrested and declared himself the winner after a kind of mock election in June, which was literally not an election at all. But Madero, who was released from prison, he then published his Plan de San Luis Potosi from San Antonio, Texas, calling for a revolt on November 20th. And that revolt was a failure. But it did kindle the revolutionary hope for many people. And so in the north, you had people like Pascual Orozco and Pancho Villa who mobilized their ragtag armies and began raiding government garrisons. In the south, you had Emiliano Zapata, who waged a bloody campaign against the local caciques, which are like the rural political bosses. Do you remember how do you remember how there would be these kind of political bosses in New York City for the Irish immigrants? Like they were kind of like the mob bosses who they were the union bosses where the workers would all vote for them and give them political power and in exchange they would give them favors. Yes. Okay, so it's imagine that. But down in southern Mexico, that that you had rural political bosses who kind of controlled the things. I think that just happens in a lot of different, I don't know, I want to say countries like Trinidad and I guess South American, I'm not sure if it's all South American countries, but a decent amount of them, it does tend to happen more and I'm not sure why. You typically see some kind of consolidation of power among people who have well, prestige Power. and influence. Yeah. Like, that's that's what you always see. And it, does, it doesn't even usually start off in, like, a malicious way. I think it would just start off in, like, a, oh, I can do this for you if I had, like, you know, more funds. I can do it quicker. And then it just kind of spirals out of control. Yep. And so in the spring of 1911, these revolutionary forces took Ciudad Juarez and they forced Diaz to resign. They then declared Madero the president. Okay, so awesome. Now... Everything is resolved and all the people are happy. Right, Gabby? Everything is fixed. Yes. Gabby, how how long have we done this? Like, since November, I think the end of November. So we've done 28 episodes. This is the 29th episode. Okay. okay. Let me ask you something. Every time I have ever said the phrase, and everything in the end was awesome and it was all fixed and good, what, what, what usually happens? It gets worse. Exactly. It gets worse. The answer to this was no. The revolution did not fix anything. It was not it, it was not better. Wait, so I should stop having a positive outlook on life? Pretty much. Welcome to history. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't phrase it like that, but that's genuinely the kind of the reality <laughs> of what ends up happening. Hey everyone, it's Takuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Like, history is a story. It's like goes back to this ancient Greek phrase of the only difference between comedy and tragedy is how it ends. Like, literally, that's it. If the story ends nicely, it's a comedy. If the story ends poorly, it's a tragedy. And because the events that happen over the course of the tragedy and the comedy are literally one and the same. It's just, that's kind of how it goes. So, Madero becomes president, but his regime falters almost immediately from the start. Because he may have been idealistic, but he was a very ineffectual chief executive, you know, leader... And he disappointed most of his followers by failing to recognize the need for economic changes. So from October 1910 to 1911, Pancho Villa was a very effective military leader. But in May of 1911, Villa resigned from command because of differences that he had with another commander, that one guy, Pascual Orozco Jr. Now that guy, now, now he was a real piece of work. So while Emiliano Zapata's army kept Diaz's federal forces busy in the south, Orozco and his armies took over the north. The kind of uneasy alliance of Orozco, Madero, and Pancho Villa, it allowed them to capture several key towns in northern Mexico, including Ciudad Juarez, which Madero then made his provisional capital. Orozco maintained his businesses during the time as general, and on one such occasion, his first action upon capturing a town was to immediately sack the home of one of his business rivals there. Orozco was, um... He was a pretty cruel and ruthless commander. He once sent the uniforms of dead federal soldiers back to Diaz with a note, Here are the wrappers. Send more tamales. I know you're looking at me right now. He literally did that. What? Yeah. So on May 29th, 1911, Villa then married his sweetheart, Maria Luz Corral, and they tried to settle into a kind of quiet domestic life. Unfortunately, though, Madero had become president. And so things weren't exactly stable, and political unrest once again began to appear in Mexico. So Orozco, who was angered by being left out of what he considered his rightful place in the new government, he challenged Madero by starting a new rebellion in the spring of 1912. You see, Madero saw Orozco as a kind of violent hillbilly, essentially. Like, literally, that's what he was. He was useful to the war effort as a kind of, you know, man of violence, but he was completely out of his depth when it came to government and actually ruling. Orozco, who was unlike Villa in that he was not fighting for any kind of idealistic goals, but rather under the assumption that he was going to at least be made a kind of state governor, was outraged when he got nothing. Orozco had accepted the post of general, but he resigned it when he refused to fight Zapata, who had rebelled against Madero for not implementing land reform. So in March of 1912, Orozco and his men, called the Orozquistas or Colorados, they once again took to the field. And then, once again, 
Villa gathered his troops, and he worked with General Victoriano Huerta in order to support Madero in quashing the rebellion. So while fighting Zapata to the south and Orozco to the north, Madero turned to two generals. You had Victoriano Huerta, as I said earlier, who was a relic left over from the days of Diaz, and you had Pancho Villa, who still supported him. Huerta and Villa were able to rout Orozco in several key battles. You see, Orozco's poor control of his men contributed to a lot of his losses. Like He just he didn't really know what to do with them properly as a leader. You see, he allowed them to sack and loot a bunch of the towns that they captured, which turned locals against him. And in the case of a revolution, if you are revolting against the government, and then you sack the towns of the people that you're then trying to take over, they're not exactly, ref- uh, what's the term? Um, eager to have you in charge? I think that's the best way that I could phrase that. Like, like imagine, Gabby, at your shift, if someone just came in and said, like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to break all the machines. Now, I know how to fix the situation. I'm shift supervisor. They broke the machines. They broke the machines. They decided to be the supervisor. Yes. Because I feel like, take it, bro. I don't want to be here. Thanks. <laughs> okay. But you get what I mean. That's essentially what it is that he was doing. So he lost these battles and then fled to the United States. But the whole time this was happening, there was a lot more discord that was going on in other camps. You see, in June of 1912, Huerta actually accused Pancho Villa of stealing a horse that belonged to him and then ordered him to be executed. This a reprieve was granted at the last second by Madero, who came for Villa at the, again, the very last second. Despite that, he still had to go to prison, and he remained in prison from June 1912 to when he escaped in December 22nd, or not 22nd, it was the 27th, I believe. So he, he escaped in December of 1912. He was only there for about six months. By the time Villa escaped prison, Huerta had switched from being a Madero supporter to a Madero adversary. No longer was he actually going to help the government. He was going to try to take the government for himself. Okay. Okay, that was that's an option. Well, that's a joke. I'm joking. I mean, in the Mexican Revolution, it basically is. Like, this whole thing is a series of dominoes of a couple people work together to take down the person in charge. They then fight amongst each other to put another person in charge. They, the people that are left then fight amongst each other again to put another person in charge. So who ends up being in charge? Well, we're going to get to that, but that's that's literally the story of the Mexican Revolution. It's just one domino effect after the other that leads into a bunch of stupid crap. That actually sounds confusing. Yes! It, welcome to revolutions. Revolutions, generally speaking, are. There are very few that are clean. We need to cover a lot more of these in the future. So... In the meantime that all of this is happening, you have the U.S. Ambassador Henry Lane Wilson, who he became an outspoken enemy of the Madero administration, and the U.S. government then turned against the new president, fearing that he was too conciliatory to the rebel groups and bandits that were all across the country, and they were concerned about the threat that the Civil War in Mexico was going to pose to American business interests there, because Americans did own and invest in a lot of different businesses that were down in Mexico. So if they go through another civil war and they destroy even more things, then all of those business, you know, investments, those are going to go up in smoke. And the U.S. government is very keen about its business. It doesn't want that. So tensions then reached a peak where yet another faction of rebel forces, this time led by Felix Diaz, who was the former dictator's nephew, 
they clashed with federal troops in Mexico City under the command of Victoriano Huerta. And so on February 18th, 1913, around the ninth day of that fight, known as La Tequeña Tragica, or the Ten Tragic Days, Huerta and Diaz met in Ambassador Wilson's office and they signed a kind of agreement called the Pact of the Embassy, in which they agreed to conspire against Madero and to install Huerta as the president. Huerta then assumed the presidency then the following day after arresting Madero and his vice president, Jose Maria Pino Suarez, both of whom were, well, can, can, can you guess what happens next? What happened to him? He died. Yeah, he got shot Wait, a few days later. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, in the in a revolution for it here, oh, they are. That sounded. I'm not excited that he got shot. I know you're ex- you're excited. You got it right. I know. Okay, I just want to clarify, you guys. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So that that is something that happens for it here. You take things over. Uh, you got political enemies that are still there. The former guy that is in charge, you don't want to leave him alive because they are potentially going to come back and try and take over the government again because they still have supporters. So yeah, they 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 got shot. Now, it was more than likely under Huerta's orders because they were in the process of being transferred from one prison to another prison when they mysteriously got shot. So that, that, that they, they were more than likely just assassinated. Now, after Madero's assassination in 1913, Villa then returned to Mexico and he formed a military band of several thousand men that became, they became known as the kind of famous División del Norte, or the Division of the North, because they operated and controlled large parts of the north of Mexico. And combining his forces with that of Venustiano Carranza, Villa then revolted against the increasingly repressive and inefficient dictatorship of Huerta, who was once again revealing his military talents by winning several key battles. So in December of 1913, Villa became the governor of the state of Chihuahua. With Carranza, he won a decisive victory over Huerta in June of 1914, and then together, Villa and Carranza entered Mexico City as the victorious leaders of the New Revolution. Okay. Again. So again, we finally reached this point. Everything is fine, right? No. There you go. Now you're learning. But no. I'm so sorry for the weird sidebar. Is the state of Chihuahua where Chihuahuas are from? Yes. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of where the name for it comes, because for those of you who don't know, and we can go to a whole thing with dog breeds, uh, chihuahuas were specifically bred to be guard dogs, which sounds odd. Are you joking? No, 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 because it's a matter of efficiency. I've said this before in a lot of my videos when I talk about weapons and cost effectiveness. We're going to go off into a little bit of a tangent here, but I really, really, really have to explain this. So the gist of it is, think think of it like this. You have a ranch. The ranch is in a kind of desert, arid environment. But you have cattle, you have animals, you have these things that are there. You, it's a lot of property, and you need some dogs. But if you have big dogs, like if you have, you know, hounds or uh, mastiffs or other things like this, they are going to eat a lot, right? Like, that, that, they're dogs. They eat a lot if they're big dogs. They'll eat a lot. They might eat other livestock. I don't know. Correct. We had some German shepherds that eat our sheep, which was like the opposite of their job. Yep. So the idea of the Chihuahua, like the way that it was bred, is that it was bred as a guard dog because they needed a small dog to act as a kind of alarm system. The strength of the ranch was not the dog. You didn't release 30 dogs and they, you know, would chase enemies off the property. No, no, no. What would happen is these dogs 
as annoying as they are, they were bred to be that way because they functioned as alarm systems. When a stranger would come to the to the ranch, the chihuahuas would usually be the first one to sense them coming and immediately just start like you you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to a chihuahua. Like they would just lose themselves. But that their point, their point was to be an alarm system who would then summon ranch hands who would actually be the people that fought. Okay, real talk. Now that you explain it, I have to apologize to a few chihuahuas. Like, that's literally what they were bred to do. That's their purpose. That's like getting a retriever and then being really confused as to why it's bringing you things. Because it's a retriever. It, it, it's what it was bred to do. I want a dog that just cuddles with me. I mean, we had one of those, but unfortunately our uh, our daughter was allergic to him. Mm. Yeah. So goes the reality. Yay, fun times. Who knows what we're going to do in the future. Anyway, that was that was a bit of a tangent. Back to the story. Okay. So, where were we? Right, right, where though? So, in the spring and summer of 1914, these loosely allied rebel forces converged on Mexico City. They were going to be victorious. After a series of constitutionalist victories, Huerta went into exile on July of 1914, and Carranza then declared himself president on August the 20th over Villa's ob- objections. Like, Villa did not want Carranza to be the president. And what, what followed was a kind of state of anarchy, and this led to bloodshed in the streets, that it went all the way until Villa, Obregón, and Zapata all sat down and they held a convention in which it was agreed that the rivalry between Villa and Carranza made any sense of order just impossible. Like, they, they couldn't do it. And so what they did is they elected another guy, I think I would pronounce his name, U- Yulalio? Like, Yulalio Gutierrez is his name. So they elected Gutierrez as the kind of interim president while they kind of, while they moved to figure things out. And so Villa retained the support of Zapata, and he backed Gutierrez. Obregón, however, he re-allied himself with Carranza, and then he routed Villa in a kind of bloody battle in April 1915 at Celaya. And thereafter, both Zapata and Villa began to lose ground. And Villa, blaming his defeat on Wilson's support of Carranza, he launched a vendetta against Americans in Mexico and in the U.S. border towns. So in order to demonstrate that Carranza did not actually control northern Mexico, Villa executed around 17 U.S. citizens at Santa Isabel in Chihuahua in January of 1916. And then two months later, he attacked Columbus, New Mexico, killing around 17 Americans. So, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson then sent an expedition under General John J. Pershing to that area. Which, yes, if you're wondering, yes, it's that Pershing, the one that the Pershing tank is named after. And so, because of Villa's popularity, and also his knowledge of the terrain being, you know, a local of the area of northern Mexico, they, 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 they couldn't find him. Like, the Mexican government did not like the fact that Pershing was on their soil, so the Mexican government didn't help, the locals didn't help, and then Pentrovia was just skilled. So it really was impossible to capture Villa. So that's where we are. It's getting even more messy. So Carranza, now president, presided over the writing of the Constitution of 1917, which conferred dictatorial powers on the president, but... It also gave the government the right to confiscate land from wealthy landowners. It guaranteed workers' rights. It limited the rights of the Roman Catholic Church. It was was steps towards progress. 
and Kranza remained in power by eliminating those who opposed him. Like, okay, remember all those supporters? Remember Zapata and all them who were, were doing things? Yeah, he got assassinated in 1919. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. But then in 1920, opposition reached a climax when he tried to break up a railroad strike in Sonora. So deserted by virtually all of his supporters, including Obregón, he was killed attempting to flee the capital on May, of, on May 21st. And then Adolfo de la Huerta became the interim president until Obregón was elected in November. So I think at this point we've been through like four or five presidents in the span of eight years. My question is, how is the country doing overall? Not good. It's on fire. Because if no president is in office long enough to actually do anything, right? I mean, they did things. They just did things and then got shot. That's so And sad. then more people got shot. That's still, that's even worse. That's even more sad. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that is essentially the end. Like, most historians are going to regard 1920 as the end of the revolution, but there would be sporadic violence and clashes between federal troops and varying different rebel groups and bandits all over the place that would continue all the way until they would be put down by the reformist president, uh, Lazaro Cardenas, who took office in 1934, and he institutionalized the reforms that were fought for during the revolution and were legitimized in the Constitution of 1917. So Villa saw the death of Carranza as a kind of opportunity. He didn't want to fight anymore. He wanted peace. He wanted to be able to settle down. And so he began negotiating for his terms of surrender to the government. Villa, in this deal was going to be allowed to retire to his vast hacienda at Canotillo, which was around 163,000 acres. Like, it was extensive, much of which was going to be very suitable for agricultural livestock. Like, it was going to be set up pretty well. And as part of the terms of his surrender, Villa was supposed to stay out of national politics. He wasn't supposed to be part of any of this where there would be any potential rebellions or anything in the future. And he did not need to be told to not cross Obregón. Because that guy, again, he was brutal. Still, Villa was going to be very safe, at least for the time being, in his armed camp in the north. And that's really what it was. He had an hacienda, but he was surrounded by legions of his own kind of private bodyguards who functioned as his own little private army. And because of that, he was able to be safe. Like any people or troops or anything that might come after him, he was going to be protected. So Villa lived a very quiet life, or at least a fairly quiet life, between the periods of 1920 to 1923. He straightened out his personal life, which had become fairly complicated during the war, because, I mean, it's going to be messy when you're literally living your life as a bandit guerrilla leader. 
So he managed his estate, he stayed out of politics, he really tried to do his best. Although their relationship had warmed up a little bit, Obregón never really forgot about his old rival. And he was always kind of watching and waiting what was going on in the north. Villa knew this, and so he rarely left his ranch. When he did, his 50 armed bodyguards, all of whom were fanatically loyal to him, they accompanied him. But in July of 1923, Villa made a very fatal mistake. On July 10th, he went by car to the neighboring town of Paral to serve as godfather at the baptism of a child of one of his men. He had a couple of armed bodyguards with him, but the, not the 50 that he usually traveled with. He had a mistress in Paral, and so he stayed with her for a while after the baptism. Why is it always a mistress? Why, is, why do they always end up ending because of a mistress? He delayed a couple days. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of what happens. And so he finally returned back to Canotillo on July 20th. But he never made it back. Assassins had rented a house in Paral on the street which connects Paral with Canotillo. They had been waiting for three months for their chance to hit Villa. And as Villa drove past, a man in the street shouted, Viva Villa! And this was the signal that the assassins were waiting for. From the window, they began to rain gunfire down on Villa's car. Villa, who had been driving, was killed almost instantly. Three other men in the car were also killed who were with him, including the chauffeur and Via's personal secretary, as well as one bodyguard who died later of his injuries. Another bodyguard was injured, but he had managed to escape. So ended Pancho Villa. He was buried the next day, and people began asking, of course, naturally, being hugely popular in the area, who the hell killed him? Like, who ordered the hit? And it very quickly became apparent that this assassination had been very well organized. The killers were never caught. Federal troops in Paral had been sent away on a bogus mission, which meant that the killers had time that they could finish their job and leave just as they wanted without having to fear about being chased. Any of the telegraph lines that were out of Paral had been cut, and Via's brothers and his men, they didn't hear about his death until hours after it happened. And so an investigation into the killing was just, at every kind of turn, it was stopped by any cooperative forces you can imagine. The The government had no interest in pursuing it. The regular police had no interest. The locals were even staying out of it. No one was able to really do anything. The local officials wanted nothing to do with it. And so the people of Mexico wanted to know who had killed Villa. And after a few days, you had this guy called Jesus Salas Barraza who stepped forward and he claimed responsibility. Now, when he did that, that, of course, let many higher officials who might have been responsible off the hook, including Obregón, Callas, and Castro. Obregón at first refused to arrest Salas, claiming his status as a congressman, which that's what he was, gave him immunity. He then relented, and Salas was sentenced to 20 years, although that sentence was then commuted to three months by the governor of Chihuahua. No one else was ever charged with any crime at all in the matter. And that's it. That is the story of Pancho Villa. That was a wild ride. It is. Like, that really is the Mexican Revolution. It's one of those things that's truly... I mean, it, it really is an insane one. It, the, I, I would need to cover a lot more revolutions, I think, from start to finish, because no one ever really understands them, and I think it's a really great way to address it over the course of, like, you know, 40 minutes or so that just kind of explains... What it is. I'm an expert at the French Revolution because I did watch... Oh, God. 
What? No, French Revolution. I can only Les think. Mis. That's going to be. I, oh, God, what? Really? <laughs> really? That's the direction? I was going to go, man, the French Revolution. That would be a great, like, four or five part series, like the Crusades, because of how much shit Which happens French in Revolution? it. I mean, when people say the French Revolution, they mean the French Revolution. Okay, Admittedly, though, there have been multiple revolutions. I find it hilarious the fact that France is on its fourth republic. Because let's see, hold on. France was a kingdom, then it was a republic. Then it was an empire. Then it was a kingdom again. Then it was a republic. Then it was an empire again. I can just see the gears Then it was turning. a republic. Then, then it got taken over by, yeah, then it got taken over by the Nazis. So it was Vichy France. So a dictatorship effectively. And then it became a republic again. And that, that is why France, if you look at its government, is called the Fourth Republic. Because it's literally the Fourth Republic that, no, 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 it's the Fifth Republic. Oh my God. No, it is. It is. Because France had a republic. The republic wasn't working. Like, I, I think it was the Fourth Republic got taken over. The Third Republic was the one that they had a, they had to basically redo the constitution on because the government wasn't functioning, I believe. And then they, they, they that created the Fourth Republic. And then after the Fourth Republic was defeated, then you had the Fifth Republic. I believe that's the... No, I'm going to verify that, but I'm pretty sure that that is the case. I have no way of knowing. I'm just here for the ride. Well, anyway, it is time to look at today's viewer submission. Or I say viewer. Listener. Yeah. I mean, if I post this to YouTube, y'all are going to be viewing. But in this case, you all are mostly listening because you're, you know, podcast. I'm rambling at this point. On to today's listener story. Okay, so today's listener story comes from Jay Marrow, who said, Hey guys, so this is the ancestor that brought my family from the highlands of Scotland to America in around the 1650s-ish. His name was Henry Marrow of Inverness, or Invernessshire, Scotland. And he was, I believe, Clan Fraser or Lovat, but possibly of Clan Mackintosh. Not sure, as there is a town on the Fraser side that is named Morrow, but possibly just a coincidence. He fought in the Battle of Dunbar on the Scottish Third War of Independence on the Scots side. Before, during, or after the collapse of the Scottish army at the battle, he was captured, and he was later then boarded, or he later boarded the ship called the Unity, and was sent to the colonies to be sold as an indentured servant in Mass. Which, from this, I'm assuming that means in Massachusetts, that's where it says. Uh, there he married and had children and then died in reading Massachusetts. Ah, yeah, so that is definitely what it means. So he, he was sold into Massachusetts and then he died in Massachusetts. So that's where he lived. And that's about all that I know. Would love for you to do a podcast on the Battle of Dunbar and what happened before or after. Anyway, here's a link to where I got some of the info. Ah, so you pulled some of this up here for family history. Well, sir, that is a fascinating story. And I actually can, off the top of my head, do something. I'm not sure if you are one of my patrons, but recently one of my patrons on Patreon actually did request that I do a video on the Battle of Dunbar. So I can't explain it. For those of you who are not initiated, the Battle of Dunbar took place as part of an event called the English Civil Wars, which was kind of a mess. England went through a large period of civil war as there was a there was a long-standing clash between the more royalist-minded factions and the more Republican-slash-Parliament-minded factions, coupled with some severe issues between the Anglican Church as well as the Catholicism. Like, the, 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 it's a whole mess going back for this big thing. But anyway, 
the context that led up to the Battle of Dunbar is that at the time, the Scotland was a dominion, like it was a part of the crown holdings of King Charles I, who was King Charles I of England and Scotland. And so when Charles I got executed in England, while England itself became essentially a republic, Charles, his son, Charles II, he still retained control, technically, of the crown dominions, such as Scotland. So Scotland raised Charles II to the throne as their leader and created an army that would be marched back to retake the throne for the monarch. It didn't work. It just, it didn't work. What followed was the Battle of Dunbar, where the new model army that was utilized by the English crushed the Scots. And there was actually a lot of writings that went in detail. Like, for example, Oliver Cromwell specifically wrote that in his journey up to Scotland, he noted that the villages that he passed along the way were essentially deserted. They were filled with only children, women, and old men. Every person of fighting age seemed to have been gathered into one location. And so when his army arrived at the Battle of Dunbar, it outnumbered the Scots something like, or not the Scots, outnumbered the Scots, the Scots outnumbered the English something like two to one, where it was 23,000 men versus 11,000. But the 11,000 crushed them because you had a veteran, skilled army versus what was essentially a mass-raised levy that was thrown at the enemy, and then weather and tactical ability just kind of screwed them. But that is the story of Dunbar. So I'm actually curious as to what happened there, because he might have been captured, because approximately, I think it was 10,000 Scotsmen got captured after the Battle of Dunbar. So, if your ancestor was indeed one of those, that would actually make a lot of sense. But that was a really good story. I liked that. Okay, and I have a story from a listener named Uncle Willie. And he says, do you ever lose stuff? I do. All the time. I come by it honestly, though. My great-grandmother had a genealogy done back in the 80s, and we are descended from John White, who lost the entire Roanoke colony. And I just love that. I love that so much. That is actually quite funny for it here. It's also it's also an interesting time every time you start out a conversation where, anyway, from Uncle Willie. Oh, yeah. So thank you, Uncle Willie, for making me laugh. I do hope that you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you for submitting your listener story. And remember, if you would like to submit your own stories to be considered, then please do send them to workwithstakuyi at gmail.com. You can find our you can find the link to it if you're trying to actually send it on our website, which is just historyofeverythingpodcast.com. So check out the website, and I do hope that you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you, my hoes, and goodbye. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!